This episode is presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. For tickets for an upcoming game or concert, visit TicketKingOnline.com or a quick link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. TicketKingOnline.com, 612-341-4141. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful day Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. All right, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Touch 'em All podcast. I'm Phil Mackey from 1500 ESPN, the Mackey and Judd Show, and the brand new Hardball Society podcast. Uh, that's Derek Wetmore. He's a Twins beat writer and the overlord of 1500ESPN.com. It's oh, an fancy title. Uh, well, Overlord is sort of what like Derek Falvey's title should be too. Instead of Executive Vice, do you see the Twins press release they sent yeah, out today? Yeah. We're going to introduce like four paragraphs long for Derek's title: Executive Vice President of and Chief Baseball Officer and All Around Good Person, all capital letters. Yes, that should that's be basically your. That title. should go on my business card. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you uh, if you're finding us on iTunes, you should know that you can find us also on Podcast One and the Podcast One mobile app. And uh, 1500ESPN.com, and then vice versa for all those two. Those are the three main places you can find this podcast. Let's dive right in. World Series ended last night. We're recording this uh, about 15 hours after drunk Theo Epstein dropped F-bombs on the local (laughs) Fox affiliate in Chicago. What can the Twins learn from the Indians and the Cubs based on what we've seen not only the last few years, but even specifically some of the things we've seen in the postseason? Let me give you one big picture thing, and then I want to dive into some of these moves that we've talked about in the past that that we talked about on the radio today, Phil, and that that really everyone talks about blueprints and oh, it's a blueprint. Look, everybody's got the same basic blueprint. I mean, they might go about it in different ways. Get good players, make sure you can afford them, and then build the best team set to win in October. Like that's this is nothing revolutionary. So, not reinventing the wheel on this podcast, but talking about. This one big picture thing that I think that the Twins should take from the Cubs specifically is that it just takes some time. It takes patience. It takes hard, disciplined planning over multiple years to get to a place where now I believe the Cubs are going to be a perennial contender for the World Series. If there's one big, big picture thing without even talking about the moves, the trades, the signings, you know, international free agency, none of that stuff. Big picture move is it takes planning, it takes discipline, and it takes a little bit of luck, frankly, uh, to get into a position where you can be a year after year World Series contender. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we like to use gambling analogies and metaphors and comparisons on this show. You and I would promise do. we're not junkies. Uh, I'm not going to make that promise. Actually, <laughs> I speak for you with your blackjack background and my, me with my poker background. And I would say with poker specifically, and actually the the World Series of Poker just wrapped up. Some dude uh, won like $8 million again. Did he drop and, F-bombs on yeah. the local affiliate afterwards? He did, actually. That's, yeah, that's awesome. crazy. But Vegas is more open to that yeah. than uh, the heartland. I think your job in baseball as a front office, and this is going to be Derek Falvey and now Thad Levine, who was just uh, announced by the Twins today as the new GM coming from Texas. Your job is to build a roster that that reaches the threshold of being good enough to put yourself in a position to win a World Series. 
not build a team that wins the World Series. It's build a team that has much better chances to win the World Series than uh, the bottom half of the league. And I know it's... It's it's hard for fans sometimes to wrap their head around, like Indians fans. What do we need to do to make this team better? Well, in all honesty, if you would have had Carlos Carrasco and or uh, Danny Salazar healthy as starting pitchers, you probably do win the World Series. But and even if or Michael Brantley, right, year. or Michael Brantley. You know? But let's say even if you had a full allotment of players, yeah. there's really nothing the Indians would be able to do to make that team better. They just like you could make it maybe incrementally better, but maybe you'd lose uh, in other areas. You just got beat because baseball. Like you went to seven games and you lost by one run, and that's that's kind of how baseball is sometimes. So I would agree on the patient side. Uh, let's just go back and forth with things that the Twins can learn. Let's just yeah. like literally go back and forth like and alternate. It. And I've got a list of trades they can learn from, which I'll bring up to you later in the podcast. But I think you can learn if you're the Twins, even though you want to be forward thinking and progressive, and you want to make sure that you have your analytics department beefed up, and you don't want to fall behind in the analytics arms race. It's very important to have all the information that's possibly available at your disposal, and then communicate that information to everybody on the field staff and all the players. But I think there's a certain unquantifiable thing about watching the Indians and the Cubs. The players aren't swallowed up by the moment. Most of the players, I should say. When you watch Rajai Davis at the plate down by two, basically four or five outs to go, or your season's over, and he's facing Araldis Chapman, right? He's not swallowed up by the moment. Chris Bryant, young player, whether it's running the bases or playing defense or at the plate against Andrew Miller and some of the best pitchers in the game and Corey Kluber, he's confident he's going to get the job done. I don't know if that goes back to scouting or if it if it's something in the water, so to speak, as you're developing players through your pipeline. But there's something unquantifiable about, as Dan Gladden put it on our radio show today when we were talking about what does it take in a Game 7, says you can't measure marbles, man. You can't like measure you, marbles. You can't measure marbles. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you, if you develop those types of personalities, the Johnny Gomes of the world and the Mike Napolis or Carlos Santana's. When you watch Javier Baez play, he just looks more confident than most 23- or 24-year-old kids who are just succeeding in the big leagues for the first time, right? He looks like he's been in the big leagues for 10 years when you watch his mannerisms, his facial expressions, um, when he when he strikes out or when he makes a bad play, he's annoyed with himself because he knows he should have made a play, uh, whereas a lot of 23, 24-year-olds who are new might just kind of be like, oh, it's you know, part of the process of... But but you can't. It's not something that you can uh, that you can add up or that you can. I listen to me like old scout I right know, now. That yeah. you can't so, you can't right. quantify it on so, a spreadsheet. But I th- I think it matters a you lot. You said uh, it's something in the water. So you just saying that uh, Minneapolis changed its water supply uh, over at Target Field. Yeah, Maybe stop recycling. That hook something up to Chicago or Cleveland. That's yeah, right. for sure. <laughs> Take stream from my, just like pipeline it in from Cleveland. Can you get like those Culligan water things? That <laughs> yeah, the water right. cooler things. Can you just get those Go imported f- from Progressive yeah, Field or Lake from Wrigley Erie and scoop it up and drop? <laughs> in yeah. Minneapolis-St. Paul. I Does think, that make sense? Like, when you watch the Twins, it. the Twins are bad, and maybe because you're bad, it it, yeah. it, had, it tends to have a downward-spiraling effect. But when you watch a lot of the younger Twins players, they don't look like they know what they're doing sometimes. They, look, they don't look like they're confident in getting the job done. Let me say counterpoint, because you and I, Phil, we agree a lot on this podcast. I kind of disagree here, and I don't, I don't want to fight about it, um, but... I view it differently. So hear me out here. I think that Javi Baez, I mean, we just point to him for example. 
he was really flashy and great, and everybody loved Javi Baez in the NLCS, and he's like getting this introduction on the world stage to people who are more casual baseball fans and never seen that double play tandem of Addie Russell and Javi Baez, which is going to be great for a long time, by the way. He screwed up a lot in the big moments in the World Series. Yeah, there's the, I don't know if it's Madden or Baez bunting on his own, but sure. with two strikes, try a sacrifice, squeeze to get the guy in from third base and then bunt it foul and strike out? That's a big problem. A couple of the, you know, uh, his hands sort of de- denied him um, in the World Series a few times, too. There's some errors in the field, which is not the Javier Baez we saw this whole season. I think that you just perceive it differently we perceive it differently as humans when the cubs win 103 games and he's a piece to the puzzle whereas if javier baez was like the best player on his team and a team that lost 103 games we might look at him differently we might be like oh man look he's always choking in the big moments here right the moment gets big for him and he sort of shrinks i think if let's hope let's turn it on the twins for a second i think if miguel sano or if eddie rosario was like you know, the fifth or sixth most important person on his team and, and sort of involved in this culture of, hey, we're going to win every night. And if we don't, that's weird. That's a fluke, and we'll go get him tomorrow. Versus the Twins going out there thinking, um, you know, maybe, maybe, I'm I'm totally ascribing a thought process that might not actually exist, but maybe you get towards August, towards September, and you think, eh, well, doesn't matter if we win or lose today. I'm going to try to get my two hits. Totally different thought process than when you're looking up to the David Rosses of the world, the John Lester's, the Jake Arrieta's, and seeing, man, okay, those guys are really doing it. Let what me, can I do to emulate Let that? me frame it this way, because I, I totally understand. What you're, if Javier Baez was on the Twins, then you'd probably think be, of him perceive him a little bit differently. Yeah. Or he'd be... Uh, you know, he'd be one of three guys on a 25-man roster that you could see playing for the Cubs or for the Indians or somebody good. Um, and I, there's a couple guys on the Twins I could say, yeah, personality-wise, oh, yeah, they would totally fit in as uh, as leaders in the future on these teams. But I think it's a matter of type A and or refuse-to-fail mentalities that good teams tend to, whether it's coincidentally or or organically, just have on their rosters. Red Sox throughout the years. It's not a bunch of wallflowers who are just like it's not a bunch of Josh Willinghams or Ryan Domitz, or if I may say, Brian Dozier, Trevor Plouffe types who sometimes pop up and they're, but they're not like Brian Dozier and Trevor Plouffe are good players, but they're not going to be the vocal personality leaders on a team that wins a World Series. Um, there's a lot of this that it's 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 a chicken before the egg debate here too. Are the Cubs as good as they've been the last two years solely because of talent and then as a result of good talent and good management, they just express their personalities and express their confidence? Or did their personalities and their confidence lead to yeah. this surge in wins over the past couple of years? I don't know if we're ever going to have a concrete answer to that question, but yeah. I just noticed the personalities and I noticed the attitudes and the marbles of the Indians and the Cubs. Thank you, Dazzleman. And it's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know where. I mean, winning begets confidence begets winning begets confidence. Like, you, you, there, it's hard to pick where the cycle starts. Another thing that I think we could learn from the Twins, uh, or, or if, if the Twins can learn from the Cubs, from the Indians, from other success. Let's not pretend like these are the only two successful teams this year. I mean, ultimately, there's only one successful team, but I think you can point to around the league saying, like, there's a good process going on here. For sure. This is a good team. They're well-constructed. They'll be competitive next year, too. Um, One of the things is that there's a lot of different ways to acquire good players and that you can't just focus on one side of the ball. 
I had a friend ask me the other day. He's uh, he likes baseball, but it's like he doesn't follow it. He's one of the you know he went to college and sort of started to drift from baseball after playing it through high school, and then uh, you got a job and uh, you're just not checking the box score every night anymore. He said, "How the Cubs built this team?" And I asked him, "Well, how long you got?" Because there's a lot of different ways that you acquire talent, you acquire players. That's the other thing that I think they can learn. The Cubs made some, in hindsight, brilliant trades. They acquired some key pieces. And, yes, it's fair to say that even some of the players that the Cubs um, that the Cubs acquired—Jason Hayward is the one that I'm thinking of specifically. You've spent a lot of money on that, and it hasn't exactly worked out so far, at least in the postseason. So Although okay. he did he did rally the troops sure. in the clubhouse during, during the rain delay of Game Seven. This is an players interesting were point. crying in the clubhouse, and Jason Hayward called a players only meeting. Apparently, this is an interesting thing. The, the game gets delayed. Hayward, a guy who's basically besides the two hits in uh, what was that Game Five of the World Series, I mean he was like two for thirty going into that game. So like basically a useless player on your postseason roster, despite the fact that he's Jason freaking Hayward. You yeah. know? Okay, cool. He's the kind of guy that can then still command the respect of the clubhouse to say, guys, we are so close to winning the World Series. Let's not lose focus of what we need to do when this rain stops and we go back out on that field. And then he came out there and like was wildly guessing at what sure. pitches were coming and struck out That's just such a powerful in ugly scene, fashion. Right? That's such a powerful <laughs> scene, though, when you think about what was going on behind those closed doors. And to me... It's amazing that a player like that who doesn't have the results on the field still commands that kind of respect and got his props after the game. The players tipped his cap and said, hey, that was a powerful moment. That was an important moment for us, the Chicago Cubs, winning the 2016 World Series. So I think we can talk about player acquisition here in a second, and I think that's what we should probably dive into next on this podcast. But knowing that there are multiple avenues, knowing that it takes patience, and knowing that some of your moves, you kind of just have to get lucky with how they play out down the future. Well, I'm going to take uh, – I, I think the Twins, I'm, I'm with you in, in this one. I think they can definitely take from the blueprints uh, of the Indians and the Cubs and the trades they've made. Now, Hayward was a signing, but some of the trades they've made yeah. – in fact, SB Nation just put out an article last week – five trades that helped shape the blueprints of these Indians and Cubs World Series teams. I'm just going to speed through these. And as you're listening, this is both for you and the listeners, start comparing maybe some of the similar trades the Twins have tried to make in the past or trades that they could make based on who they have on their roster right now. The first one's easy. Carlos Santana was acquired when he was 22 years old and mashing an A-ball for Casey Blake. And I believe Casey Blake went to the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, I failed to look that up, but Casey Blake was a pretty good, you know, league average uh, starting third baseman, 34 years old, played some outfield too, if I remember correctly, and they didn't really foresee him as a big piece yeah, to the puzzle at age 34, twilight, right? twilight of his career. And they wind up with, with a young Carlos Santana. Fleecing. So classic quality veteran for A-ball catcher at the time in Carlos Santana. Uh, the Cubs traded... In his prime, good, solid starting pitcher Jeff Samarja and Jason Hamill, who was another quality starting pitcher, for Addison Russell, who was a 19-year-old shortstop, mostly with just excellent defense at the time with the Oakland A's. When the A's were going for it with John Lester and Jeff Samarja and stacking up that rotation, uh, just a quick offshoot, that's actually the trade that overloaded the A's rotation 
and allowed the Twins to dump Sam Fold for Tommy Malone and get a couple decent years out of him, despite yeah. the fact that he had a pretty terrible year last year. So, again, they're going for the 19-year-old in this case. With the A's loading up and Billy Bean saying, all right, we got to take a shot. Let's go get another co-ace to try to lead the rotation, and the Cubs pounced to their credit. The Cubs a few years ago also traded Steve Clevenger and Scott Feldman to the Orioles Yeesh. for Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope. Now, Jake Arrieta was a highly touted prospect coming up with the Orioles, even started opening day against the Twins a few years ago against Carl Pavano. But the Cubs helped him work on that two-seam fastball, and he went from kind of a number four, number five starter, just trying to make it in the big leagues, to Cy Young Award winner a few years later. So that, that's a good trade, but it's an identification of a guy that they could make better. They saw he's only pitching at his 40th percentile. We know that if he does this and this, or we know that we could just get him in here and there's more in the tank, we could get him up to like the 80th or 90th percentile, and they did. True. Some of it I would argue, and the Cubs would hate this, but some of that's luck too. You oh, could for have sure, a, for sure. You can identify a guy that's like, hey, he's not reaching his full potential. And then uh, Chris Carter in Houston, you're like, yeah, this guy's got a lot of power in his bat. Let's see, if we brought him in here and could tighten up some of the holes in his swing— we could be talking about a superstar first baseman. And then you bring him in, and he's Chris Carter. So I, I just mean to say that, like, yeah, good identification, good process. Got a little lucky, too. I was covering that Orioles team with Pedro Strope and Jake Arrieta. And at the time, Pedro Strope was like, yeah, he's a good, I mean, he's a decent reliever. And he's got a, a couple live pitches. But, like, yeah, all right, pa- Pedro Strope. Yeah. And Arietta was, man, this was supposed to be the three-headed aces. That was at uh, Brian Mattis. Jake Arietta and Zach Britton at the front of the uh, Orioles rotation. And then they had the guys like, you know, Chris Tillman that were kind of going to fill out the rotation. Those were supposed to be the three aces. And you look at their, the way their careers have sort of deviated, and if Arietta hadn't made it in Chicago, how disappointing that trio would have been for Baltimore. I think that's still pretty disappointing yes, for absolutely. Baltimore. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And especially if you're not going to use oh one gosh. of them in the key moment in the postseason to keep your year alive, Buck Showalter. Right. Sorry to keep bringing it up. But. Uh, the the Arietta trade, good process, good identification. It's worked out tremendously well for them to get an ace. But you also have to just get a little bit lucky, frankly. And I was wrong. I I, I said uh, the Cubs taught him a two seamer. I was thinking of Kluber, which yeah, is next on the Corey list. Kluber. So the Indians traded Jake Westbrook, who was once highly touted, good young pitcher for the Indians. I think he made some key postseason starts like seven, eight, nine years ago. And they land Corey Kluber for him. And Kluber struggled in the minor leagues for. A few years there just wasn't the pitcher we know him to be now. He learns this lights out two seamer, this Greg's Maddox, uh, this Greg's Maddox, Greg Maddox like, easy for me to say. Stratomatic. Uh, this Tom's Glavin. Yeah. No, that doesn't work as well. Um, two seam fastball, and even though it didn't work out well for him in the third start of the World Series. Yeah. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball and one of the main reasons why the Indians were in that Game 7 to begin with. Yeah, I mean, he's so brilliant. Trage. Game 1 and Game 4, like, I know we're going to remember the Game 7 and the fact that he was, you could pretty clearly tell, he was out of gas. And it would have been a fantastic story had that worked out. It would have been, you know, every bit of Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling. It would have been every bit of Madison Bumgarner if Kluber had come out and had a great Game 7 performance. There just wasn't a lot of gas left in the tank, and the Indians, frankly, didn't have a lot of options left. Yeah. You, you can't hardly blame them for going to their ace again in Game 7, but the, that two-seam runner, the fastball command, and that breaking ball, whatever you want to call it, slider, curveball, it just it wasn't the same arsenal for Corey Kluber. But that's not to say that he wasn't a critically important part to their success. He's one of the most underrated aces in all of baseball, 
And uh, yeah, that trade is one of the reasons. Again, identified a potentially good player, but I would argue got really lucky with the sports universe breaks just going in their favor. But like, in is case. it so? And let me, I'm going to throw the last one out here, and then I'm going to challenge something you just said. The Cubs also traded Andrew Kashner, who was a first round pitching prospect, picked yeah, for them, big time, prospect. you know, whatever, eight years ago. And uh, and he pitched parts of a couple seasons in relief for the Cubs, and then they traded him to San Diego for Anthony Rizzo, who was on some bad Cubs teams for a couple years, but now he's one of the yeah, best hitters in baseball. Is it – you use the word luck, and I, I get it. There's luck involved in the development yeah. of prospects. Hey, guys, this is Justin Musso, pro baseball scout. And Phil Mackey, pro radio guy. And we have the best baseball storytelling podcast on the market. That's right. It's not us telling the stories. It's Aaron Boone on coming from a baseball family and hitting one of the most famous home runs in the country. Jim Brower telling Barry Bond stories. Find Hardball Society on iTunes, Podcast One, 1500ESPN.com, or HardballSociety.com. That's a lot of places. Yeah. Is it... You use the word luck, and I I get it. There's luck involved in the development yeah. of prospects, and it's it's kind of a, a Russian roulette game when you're trading for prospects. Alex Meyer was once one of the top yeah. four or five pitching prospects in baseball. The Twins traded a starting center fielder for him four years ago. It's an awfully gruesome image, actually, if you're talking about Russian roulette, because what happens if it doesn't work out? <laughs> well, Click. Yeah, well, 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 we kind of all know what happened from a figurative standpoint <laughs> oh, with that trade. Brutal. So how much of it is luck, though, when time after time you're Theo Epstein and yeah. you're nailing almost all of these trades, whether it's through development and just your confidence in getting a talented player in and then putting stock into your development system? Again, I'm asking questions that aren't really quantifiable. All I know is the Twins have tried this a couple times, and Vance Worley flamed out, and he wasn't that old. He was like 25 when they made that trade. And Trevor May, the jury's still out four years later, mm-hmm. and Alex Meyer was a disaster for the Twins. Yeah. And I could name two or three other you know, trades that John Ryan Murphy, okay, it's been one year, but what's happening there? Early returns ain't exactly So is it promising. that the Twins, man, they just got unlucky in the guys they were targeting and the Cubs got lucky? I mean, the answer is no. Right. It's not yeah. that simple. I didn't mean to I didn't even mean to like assume that or or yeah, imply that. I'm not saying that the casting shade on the Cubs right, exactly. like that. The only th- I'm not saying the only thing that happened is they got lucky on these two trades. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Process is still really really important, but within that process, you mentioned the gambling uh the fact that we're both derelicts. Um, I would say there's just there's still this certain percentage chance that things are going to work out. And part of this is my worldview that there's a lot of inherent randomness in the universe and specifically in sports. The Cubs started this season with an X percentage chance of winning the World Series. And then they clinch the postseason, so that percentage goes up a little bit, and then they make it through to the championship series, and that percentage goes even further. Okay, great. But when they start Game 1 of the World Series, or how about when they're down 3-1 in the series? It's I just don't believe in this this sort of preordained nature of sports or in life that, hey, they made this trade, so there we go. We got all their eggs in that basket, and this is the World Series winner this year. I think there's still a certain amount of balances and way things can go that that allows for some noise in the system. The, the Cubs have still, no doubt, given themselves a better chance to win next year's World Series than the Twins have given themselves to win that same World Series. Nobody's arguing that. But I don't think that it's like, well, you made all these perfect moves, and so if you copy that blueprint, you too can be a World Series winner. That's all I'm saying. No, for sure. 
No, but I th- it's not that the Indians failed. I'm saying there's about eight teams in baseball that had really successful process this year, and these two teams are toward the top of that list, right? And their process is on the opposite end of that spectrum from where the Twins' process is. So maybe the luck factor for the Cubs and the Indians, and I'm making this number up, maybe um, you know, maybe they're eliminating 70% of the luck by how great their process is. And the Twins are only eliminating like 10% of the, of the luck because their development process is so flawed. Does that make sense? Like, yes, and I don't the, disagree. The Cubs are eliminating a lot more chance because yeah. they have their ducks in a row from a from a scouting and development standpoint. I would say— and The Twins aren't. You start the year, you say—again, I'm, I'm just going to make up a number, and this one probably doesn't even make sense. You start the year with that Cubs roster knowing that you have a manager and general manager that you trust to make good in-season decisions. And the Cubs have, this is my made-up percentage— any 11% chance of winning the World Series. The Twins, on the other hand, may be going to be competitive. This is what everybody thinks in spring training, so I'm revisionist history here a little. Maybe going to be competitive this year. Maybe they'll mess around and get to a wild card game, and then it's just roll the dice, and you, you, you hope that they could go a little further if you're the Twins. Well, obviously that didn't pan out, but what were the Twins' chances preseason? Less than a half a percent to win the World Series or, or whatever it is? The pitching staff that they had, did you really think that they were going to go up against the mighty Cubs, against yeah. you know the Nationals, against some of these great teams in baseball right now? Uh, I'm not saying that there's a close divide between what the Twins did to prepare and what the Cleveland Indians and or the Chicago Cubs, but I'm just saying that 0.5% to 11% isn't as big as we sometimes make it out to be that, well, these are the World Series teams and these are the also-rans. I think there's a grayer area in between. Uh, something else I learned about, all right, I guess something else the Twins can learn from the Indians and the Cubs. It's okay to splurge and probably necessary to splurge financially on really good relief pitchers. Yeah, That's both from a trade standpoint and from how much you're paying them. Andrew Miller, and they gave up good prospects to get him from the Indians. Andrew Miller makes $9 million a year for the next couple of years. From the Yankees, yeah. The Indians trade. How much? So the Yankees are paying a bunch of that money? No, no, no. You said that uh, the, they oh, gave up that? a bunch to get him from the Indians. Oh, from, to the oh, Indians. Right, right. We're all good. We're all right, on the right, same right. page. So he makes $9 million a year, which is, I mean, the Twins have balked at 6 or $7 million a year for some more of the 7th or 8th inning guys. Uh, Araldus Chapman, his contract is up. But uh, he's going to make at least nine or ten million dollars a year. In fact, oh, this, yeah. this this past season he made eleven million dollars on the end of his most recent contract. So, if you want to fix your bullpen and you want lights out roaming relievers who can come in and put out fires in the seventh and the eighth and pitch a bunch of innings and miss a bunch of bats, you don't just get lucky and find those guys. Like you don't. Ju- Ryan Presley doesn't just turn into that guy. You might have to go identify someone, either pay them a bunch of money. Or give up some assets to go get that specific uh, relief pitcher. I think two points on that. I think that relief pitching we've seen in the past few World Series is going to continue to be an added emphasis. And remember, it's not like the Indians started the season with that plan. It's not like the Cubs started the season. It's They put themselves in a good position and at the trade deadline said, screw it. We're going to get a relief ace, Cody Allen, um, Dan Otero, although, sorry, you're kind of going to get bumped down the pecking order. We just got Andrew Miller. I will also say my second point. So so you're going to see teams start to value that more if they already hadn't based on the Kansas City Royals blueprint of the past two seasons. Teams are going to start paying for these guys. It means 
necessarily, some people are going to be overpaid. You know, your Antonio Bastardo, who we rolled out the red carpet for, invited him to join the podcast last winter. He might not have a great season in New York with the Mets, but, like, he's going to get money. These players are going to get paid when they hit free agency, especially the guys who are in their late 20s and, and have a track record of some established relief dominance. Um, Chaska's Brad Hand is going to get some money this year. He's a free agent, and he had a successful season with the strikeouts and walks. He's going to get paid a lot of money, even though he's not a household name. I think it's more important to pay money. If you have a choice between paying like nine, ten, or twelve million dollars a year to an ace reliever who's going to give you sixty to eighty really good innings in high leverage situations, and even more important in the postseason, yes, that's a better ten million dollars to spend than on a number four or number five starter. Yes, yes. beef you can... up your one, two, and three spots. Right. Beef up your bullpen bridge, and then. Try to find your $500,000 minimum wage guys or like $1 million, $2 million Tommy Malone types to be number five starters, and then don't let them go through an order a third time. Yes. Yeah. As often as you can. And so, it's regular season. You're playing a bunch of games. but And I, I will say the other thing, too. You mentioned uh, Ryan Presley doesn't just turn into that guy. I'll fight you on that point because I think Ryan Presley has the makings of a great late inning reliever. I'm talking dominant late really? inning reliever. Yes, I do. I think that he has. I the think stuff. he has really good stuff. I think he has the stuff and the mental makeup okay. to become a horse at the back end of the bullpen. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but keep in mind what was Andrew Miller before he was Andrew Miller? Right, he's a failed starter. He's a broken pitcher. He's the but, kind of guy that you're like, there's talent uh, in there. I, I, okay. I think I like Ryan Presley. You and I are splitting hairs here a little bit. I think Ryan Presley is a good setup guy. Ryan Presley was a Rule Five available to anyone. Yes, uh, three years ago. Yes, Trust Andrew me. Miller was once. The next right. starting pitching prospect. Trust he was me. a first-round pick. He's Trust one of the me. most talented pitchers baseball has seen in 20 years. I'm not trying to revise history here. What I'm trying to say is that, uh, yeah, top prospect status and then subsequent bust status. Jake Arrieta, top prospect status, subsequent bust status. They came around, and they did fulfill this talent that evaluators saw. But for every guy that does that, there's uh, an Alex Meyer. And now the book's still out on him. I think it'd be... Interesting to go see him have a successful career in Anaheim. That would be awfully damning of the Twins' pitching development process if he did go succeed. But there's prospects who have this potential, never fully realize it, and then kind of fizzle away, fade out to the back. Wade Davis fulfilled that potential. Andrew Miller has fulfilled that potential. Araldus Chapman, remember how he came into the league? He was going to be a starter. Remember, they were going to exactly. They were going to start him off in the bullpen. He was going to become a starting pitcher. Bit I think a, he. I think he started in spring training for a bit of a Neftali Feliz situation, except it's in Cincinnati. Yeah. And you're talking about a highly talented arm. So a Chapman's a different, a different deal. And look. I'm not trying to compare Ryan Presley and say he's eventually going to win one of those Rolades Relief Awards or whatever they're calling them these days. <laughs> I'm not I'm not here to say, well, look, the Twins have their bullpen structure started because they've got Glenn Perkins and Ryan Presley. That's not my point at all. My point is that there are there's a there's a process for gathering relief aces and you sort of you ha- it's just like the trade acquisition that we were talking about earlier. You have to be good. You have to have a good process. You have to get good pitchers in the system. But then you also have to get a little bit lucky that a Wade Davis goes from cast-off to Wade Davis. You have to get lucky that, uh, I'm trying to think of other guys off the top of my head, that, that Zach Britton goes from burned-out pitcher to Zach Britton. Actually, I hate to bring this guy up because he wound up being a huge PED case, but Eric Gagne, Eric Gagne. was a failed starting pitcher in <laughs> Los Angeles sure. and became the most dominant closer in 
you know, for that short span in uh, baseball history. Yeah, so uh, that was a little. He probably had a little bit of help, but that's fine. Whatever. Not, it's beside the point. It it fits my model yeah, of Rick what Aguilera, I'm talking about locally. Eddie Gordado locally. Sure. He started a bunch of games in the mid '90s for the Twins. Guys that just didn't really work out for whatever reason, and then they became a guy. Is it, nobody's a guy until he's a guy, basically, right? Even prospects have sort of this suspect label to them. Um, uh, Jose Bautista was not Jose Bautista yeah. until he was Jose Bautista. That's now that's a position player example, and it's a little bit different. But um, the, my my point is just that for every case that we can point to, and we said like, wow, man, look at the Toronto Blue Jays um, going out and getting this guy, this outfielder that was cast off everywhere, and nobody believed him, and they turned him into a star. I would argue he kind of turned himself into a star, and and this we could go dive deep, deep, deep into this rabbit hole. But the point is that it's really easy to look backward and say, oh, wow, how forward-thinking of Kansas City to go get Wade Davis and make him into the best reliever in the major leagues right now. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's it's come to pass that way. But think of the other different ways that it could have gone and didn't. That That's all I'm saying with late-inning relief. I think the Twins need to be better. We hammered them for this last winter that they had a terrible backup plan. It blew up in their face, even bigger than we thought. Yeah. But sometimes you got to get a little bit lucky, too. Actually, uh, Wade Davis, let's say he had become a decent starting pitcher, like a number three, number four starting pitcher for the Royals. They may have kept him in that spot. Sure. As maybe even a non-playoff rotation guy. Maybe he's their number four starter, and he's just like a Jeremy Guthrie type pitcher. He'll and help he, get the, you there. Mike Pelfrey is a. I've always said Mike Pelfrey could play really well in the seventh or eighth inning, throwing instead of ninety three and not striking anybody out. Maybe he starts rearing back to ninety seven, uh, ninety eight, and that might have to happen pretty soon for Mike Pelfrey sure. if he wants to stay in the major leagues. Sure. Um, so, all right, those are the things that we think the Twins should take notes on from the Cubs and the Indians: patience, good process for acquiring players, get lucky sometimes. And stop spending money on bad players in bad places and wasting innings on pitchers that aren't going to help you get to the next level. Let me add this to the to the trade conversation from before. Don't be afraid to trade players who are currently in their primes but not part of your winning vision in like three or four years. Brian Dozier comes to mind. There's others that come to mind. Um, we can maybe spend a whole episode upcoming pretty soon oh, as to like who they should be trading this offseason. Uh, that's for another day. I also want to introduce, too, if there are questions— the Touch Em All podcast audience, if you have any questions for Phil Mackey or myself, we'd love to hear them. Twitter, at Phil Mackey, at Derek Wetmore. I basically want to spend all offseason talking with you guys. I want to know what you think about the Twins. I want to know what you think the good moves would be. I'm happy to share my opinion and share some of my insight when and where I can. After we meet Derek Falvey and Thad Levine and figure these things out, what their process is going to be like, we're going to have tons of stuff to talk about. But I also want to hear from you guys on Twitter uh, whether you put it on the website, whether you put it on Twitter.com, I don't really care. Uh, just reach out to us. Let us know what you'd like to hear from us. If there's question and answer sessions, it'd be fun to just do a whole episode on that kind Yeah, of we've stuff. been thinking about doing, instead of one episode a week during the offseason, maybe do our theme of the week. Like today, obviously, was what can you learn from the Indians and the Cubs? Uh, maybe as you coined them, stealing it from Tim Ferriss, the in-between-isodes. between If you guys have questions, send them to us throughout the week. We will stockpile them, and we will answer them in uh, maybe in between isode fashion. If you're still out there, too, give us a rating on iTunes. We want to see those numbers grow. Um, it's going to be a fun podcast all off-season. Now that the 2016 season's in the rearview mirror, I'm really excited for the off-season. 
Uh, we're going to crank up the energy level on this podcast, have a lot of fun doing it, but we can't do it without your support. And as always, pants are optional. No? Okay. No, okay. no I think so that goes we're, we're, without okay. saying. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll wear pants. Never mind.